Good morning, Terra Nova family. It's good to see you, good to be with you. I am not Travis, so I will explain that in a moment, uh, but I am Pastor Daniel, one of the pastors and the lead pastor here at Terra Nova in Saratoga, if you're unfamiliar with us. Um, a little bit of a background as to why I asked, uh, well, what led to me asking Travis to come this week. The pastors of the Terra Nova uh, family of churches, which we have here in Saratoga, Troy, and North Adams, Massachusetts, went to the annual or biannual Acts 29 uh, national conference this past week. So that was Pastor Matt and myself, as well as several of the other pastors across the, that Terranova family of churches. And it was a wonderful time uh, to be able to connect in our brotherhood with one another, to be able to connect with other like-minded churches in our network, to be able to receive some good teaching. Um, one of the questions that sometimes comes up in our Nucleus class, which we have in a couple of weeks if you're interested in joining, is how as a non-denominational church does Terranova have the structure and accountability and support that it needs to thrive because denominations have provided that historically and that's a valuable thing. And so the, the short answer to that is we say three different areas. One is through the, the local camaraderie um, of the churches interdenominationally here, especially in Saratoga County. Um, you heard from a couple of those pastors over the course of my sabbatical who came and preached here. We have a good relationship with several of our local churches. But even deeper than that, that accountability and support comes from the Terra Nova family of churches that I just mentioned, as well as by extension, Acts 29. Um, ten, a little over 10 years ago, uh, when I went to my first conference, Acts 29 conference, uh, I sat down across the table from somebody in Acts 29 and kind of pitched a vision for what Terra Saratoga we hoped would be and why it was needed. And that person in their church ended up being one of the most significant uh, sources of financial support for us for those first few years. That's the kind of thing that happens at these com conferences, the network building, the relationship building. Uh, we saw Bernie Elliott there. He's a pastor of Covenant Church out in Baldwinsville in the Syracuse area who we've supported over the past couple of years. It was great to see him, to hear firsthand what God is doing through that church out there. And then just great for the pastors of the Terranova Network to be able to hear what's been on each other's hearts, to deepen those relationships. We are in regular contact with each other on a weekly basis and so that was just continuing to foster those relationships. So I just wanted to share a little bit about that. Uh, so as a result of being away all week, I'd asked Travis Waranowitz, my friend and pastor of Bethlehem Community Church, to come and preach for us uh, today. You can go ahead and come up, Travis. Travis and my relationship goes back a ways. Uh, I don't know if he started the same year as me, but in 2007 I started seminary at Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary. They had a northeast branch down in Schenectady. And Travis happened to be there and became a good friend of mine, uh, probably my closest friend through those seminary years. My fondest memories, some of them anyway, um, along, along with uh, serving at uh, Youth Adventure there in Schenectady for a couple summers, uh, with the, uh, some of the, serving the inner city kids there and sharing the gospel with them. But when it came to seminary, uh, we went through the trenches together, man, of Greek and Hebrew as we sat across the table from each other at Panera Bread and just commiserated and supported one another in learning those original languages. And uh, I'm grateful, if nothing else, for Travis and his support through those days. But thank you for coming to preach the word. Let me pray for you, brother. Father, I thank you for how your church isn't any one local church, but this thing we call the Big C Church, the universal church, the body of Christ. And I thank you for a brother like Travis, who I've known now for years, who I love, who you've called to preach your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would fill him to speak from the overflow, 
of what you have revealed to us of yourself in the scriptures and done in his heart. And I pray that you would be at work in our hearts, opening our, the eyes of our hearts to see what you want us to see about you this morning. That the gospel would land on us freshly today. That those who have already experienced your salvation would experience the growth that comes from encountering the gospel on a deep, deeper level. That those who've never understood and received the gospel, that you would open the eyes of their heart to do so this morning. All to your glory and for our greater joy. So be with our brother. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. You guys hear me okay? All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It is uh, great to be with you this morning. And thank you, Dan, for having me here. And I wouldn't have passed seminary, well, specifically Hebrew, if it wasn't for Dan. Uh, man, it was so fun studying at Panera. And uh, man, we went there a lot. We studied Hebrew and Greek pretty much every week at Panera. And uh, man, it was great. And so thank you, Dan, for allowing me to come here and share. And I do want to start our time today with a story that's going to launch us into our message. It is called, or I call this story, The Tale of Two Weddings. So about 10 years ago, my wife and I were invited to not just one wedding, but two weddings in one summer. And let me just tell you, those weddings couldn't be more different than one another. The one wedding was from a family member, not a follower of Jesus, marrying someone who also wasn't a follower of Jesus. I'm sorry. Should I use that one instead? Okay. How's that? Ooh. All right. So let's get back to the story. So the one wedding was of a family member, not a follower of Jesus, and they were marrying someone else who wasn't a follower of Jesus. And the other wedding was friends of ours, both followers of Jesus. Again, those weddings couldn't be more different. The wedding of the non-believing couple was super expensive and super focused on the couple and their happiness. It reminded me of that Pharrell song, clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. You might know that song. It's a catchy song, but think about what it's really saying. While the wedding of our believing friends was super frugal, yet super focused on Jesus and how their marriage was meant to point to him. I left one wedding feeling like it was a swing and a miss, that the, point, the whole point of the marriage was consumed by the pursuit of happiness in this life. But I left the other wedding so built up and thankful that marriage is meant to foreshadow the kind of relationship that Jesus wants with us. I remember choking up in the Jesus-centered wedding. Choking up. Because their whole desire from start to finish was to point every single person, every person who came to Jesus through songs, the scriptures, the foot washing, the message, and the reception afterward. So two weddings with two totally different focal points, the tale of two weddings. So I wanted to start today with this story for a few reasons. Number one, because we are going to look at Jesus's first recorded miracle this morning, his turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana. 
And just like our friend's wedding, the whole thing from start to finish unveils some pretty incredible and beautiful truth about Jesus and his incredible rescue plan for us. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, this rescue plan isn't just found in John, but spans the entire Bible. The whole 66 books of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Pastor Dan told me that you guys are looking at Ruth for a while, and I know of no better account that'll get you excited and more excited and even more excited for Ruth than this account in John 2, because Ruth and Boaz's story foreshadows Jesus's love for his bride, the church. So hopefully this will get you more excited for that. So that's reason number two. And then reason number three is right here in front of me, communion. We end the service with communion. And I thought this account in John 2 would prepare us well for that. So to launch us into this, I want to take a look at this video clip this morning. It's from this series called The Chosen. Have anyone seen this series called The Chosen yet? <laughs> if you haven't seen it, oh my heavens, you want to download this app called The Chosen. It's a free app, and they're doing uh, a series on the life of Christ told from the perspective of the disciples and it has heart, and it has emotion, and you see Christ through their eyes. And it's meant to get us into the Word. It is so powerful and encouraging. So I want us to take a look. And isn't that great? Oh, I know it's a long clip, but I wanted to get to the heart of what we're looking at in John 2 today. And there's so much here for us to ponder and unpack. So I want to pray for us. I know Dan already prayed, but I'd like to pray for us one more time. Ask Jesus to really guide us through this and then jump into or dive into Jesus turning water into wine. So you guys ready for this? Okay. It's usually the participatory part of the sermon where you're like, yes, let's do this. So I'm going to throw them in a couple times here make sure we're all awake. All right, so let's pray and then we'll dive into the scriptures. Let's do it. So, Father, I want to thank you so much for uh, just us being here together today. Thank you that we can gather in your name. Thank you that we can sing praises to your name. Thank you that we can watch this clip that gets to the heart of this passage about how you came into this world to bring us incredible joy. But in order to bring us joy, you had to lose yours by going to the cross and dying for us. But you didn't stay dead, Lord. You came back to life, and you offer us uh, forgiveness and eternal life through you and a joy that never ends because of everything you did for us. So I pray that as we look at this passage in John now, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. You give us open, receptive hearts and ears and uh, just open the scriptures to us by your spirit. Help us have a great time looking through this and understanding this and then with your help applying it getting excited for the banquet to come because of your perfect life, death, and resurrection. So bless us as we open your word now. In your name, amen. All right, guys. So the first point we're going to see this morning is the time of the wedding, the time of the wedding. So because we're jumping into the gospel of John, kind of uh, cold turkey today, I want to set some context for us. So the wedding at Cana is said to happen on what day? Anyone know? The third day. Now that's significant. So I want to lead, uh, I want to um, review the days leading up to it. So in John's gospel, day zero 
is in John 1, 19 through 28. So this is where John the baptizer is answering questions about himself and says that his whole mission and purpose is to point people to Jesus. So that is day zero, if you're counting, right? Day one is found in John 1, 29 through 42. In verses 29 through 34, John sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God, the one who baptizes or immerses us in the Holy Spirit, who is God the Son in human flesh. In verses 35 through 42, again that day, John the baptizer is pointing to Jesus as the Lamb of God by including that little word again. Some commentators argue that John is telling us that those two things happen on the same day. Now again, there's some debate on this, but for sake of discussion, I agree with this at this point. Uh, so after hearing about Jesus over and over again, Andrew and John are the first two disciples to follow the Lord. Andrew then finds his brother Simon, brings Simon to Jesus, and Jesus immediately renames him to Peter. Imagine how crazy that is. I'm a guest here today, and imagine if I first meet you, and I'm shaking hands, and you're, I'm like, hi, what's your name? You're like, my, my, my name's Frank. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> your name's going to be Ed from now on. And you're like... What? Yeah, why? I'm like, because. <laughs> and I just walk away. I mean, that'd be so weird, right? And that's exactly what happens. Simon shows up, meets Jesus, and it's like, well, actually, your name's going to be Peter from now on. Okay, like, incredible. Well, that's day one. Day two is found in John 1, 43 through 51. On that day, Jesus goes toward Galilee. He finds Philip and says, follow me. Philip does so, finds Nathaniel and says, hey, come on, you got to come and see the Messiah. We found him. Actually, he found us, right? And after taking or talking with Jesus for a few moments, Nathaniel becomes a believer himself really quickly. So now it leads us into day number what again? Day three. Keep that number in mind. Very significant. Day three is found at the beginning of John 2. And this is where John says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So please, let's not skip over this. John is telling us it's the third day for a reason. Let's think about this. Why would John be calling this the third day? Why call our attention to the third day? Could it be that he's foreshadowing something else that will happen on another third day later in this story? Hmm, I think so. So let's see how this whole thing plays out. So that's point one, the timing of the wedding. Let's move on now to point two, the guest list to the wedding. Point two, the guest list to the wedding. This can be found in John 2, verses 1 and 2. Now on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So Mary's there, perhaps because she's a relative of someone getting married. Who knows? We don't really know. She's just there, right? There's no mention of Joseph. Tradition has it that he had died in Jesus' teen years. And so Jesus is invited to the wedding too, along with his disciples. 
Now, as you read through John 1 and 2, I think there are six disciples with Jesus at this point. Andrew, Peter, John, Philip, Nathaniel, and if you count Mary, number six. I think that's significant as well. Keep in mind the number six. You're going to see that in a little bit. Later on, we're going to see six stone water jars that Jesus turns into wine. Again, I think this is personally significant because to those six disciples, this is what Jesus wants to bring into their experience and I believe into our experience too. So that's the guest list. Jesus plus at least six of his disciples. So now before we move on to the problem, let's talk about the ceremony itself. That will help us understand the problem a little better. So number three, you still with me, everyone? All right, good, just checking. All right, so number three is the wedding ceremony. So in a typical Jewish ceremony, the groom would come to the bride's house and take the bride back to his house. When they arrived, there would be a large meal and a celebration for all the wedding guests. And the celebration would last anywhere from two to seven days, depending on the wealth of the groom. So a host or a governor directed the festival arrangements. And listen, it would be a terrible disgrace to the groom to not have all that was needed to provide lavish hospitality. Man, this would be a social disgrace like no other. So to run out of wine would be considered an unforgivable error. And this leads us right now into point four, the problem. Dun, dun, dun. The problem that emerges. Take a look at verse three. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So at this particular wedding, for some odd reason, the wine runs out. You can almost feel the gasp, like the air is sucked out of the room, right? Mary comes to Jesus and tells him that they have no wine. In other words, do something. And look at how Jesus responds in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So when Jesus says the word, the word woman there, my students always thought Jesus was being rude here. Like, go ahead and try this with your mother <laughs> and see if you don't walk away with a black eye or a sore backside, right? So check it out. Jesus is not being rude here. He has the utmost respect for his mother. This was a customary term of their day, not for ours, mind you, so don't go trying this in our time. Pastor said it's okay to call you woman, kids. I'm not saying that, right? I, nope, nope. I most certainly did not say that. So when Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? Literally, he meant your concerns and my concerns, not the same. He goes on to say, check this out, my hour has not yet come. You're going to want to memorize that verse for John. He's going to say this over and over and over and over and over again in the Gospel of John. It's kind of a weird way to respond, but you're going to see why. 
If you read through the entire Gospel of John, you'll notice a pattern emerge. When Jesus talked about his hour, it always referred to his death. So think about what he's saying here. Mary, what does this have to do with me? My hour to die has not yet come. What? So Mary's like, come on, Jesus, like, we need more wine. He's like, what does this have to do with me? Like, I'm not ready to die. Isn't that an odd response? Anyone else think that's kind of a weird way to respond? Yes, I do. I'm like, what are you saying, Jesus? Well, I love how Tim Keller unpacks this in an incredible book called Encounters with Jesus. Listen to this. He says this, what is Jesus thinking here? Why does he connect a simple request for wine with the hour of his death? Well, think of the symbolism. The miracle will be a sign of what he's come to do. What does the wine represent in his mind? What is missing from the picture that's necessary to turn the shame to joy? We know because he creates the wine in the jars for purification and cleansing. You see, when Jesus makes his statement, it's as it's if he's looking far away, past his mother, past the bride and groom, past the whole wedding scene, he's seeing something else. He's thinking, yes, I can bring festival joy into this world. I can cleanse humankind from its guilt and shame. I have come into this world to bring joy, but oh, mother, I'm going to have to die to do it. Keller continues, I actually think that there may be even more going on in his mind than this. In the Old Testament, God wants to show us that he doesn't want to relate to us only as a king relates to his subjects, but check this out, guys, but as a groom relates to his bride. That's how Jesus wants to relate to us, as a groom relates to his bride. He wants a love relationship with us, as profound as a relationship between a husband and a wife. So often in the Hebrew scriptures, God presents himself as the bridegroom of his people. Then at one point in John's gospel in the New Testament, the disciples are criticized for not fasting, and Jesus says, why should the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom's still with them? So, did you hear that? Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. He does so in full awareness that, according to the scriptures, only the creator, God of the universe, is husband of his people. So, as a writer, John goes on to make much of this theme. In the book of Revelation, at the end of the New Testament, he depicts the end of all things this way. I saw the holy city... Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So in other words, at the end of time, there will be the feast to end all feasts. Are you getting excited for that? There's coming a feast to end all feasts. It will not be a generic, simple banquet, but a wedding feast. It celebrates at long last the intimate and permanent union of people who love each other, and that is how history ends. That is what Jesus came to accomplish. We the bride, the people Jesus has loved will finally be united with him. 
the most rapturous love of a wedded couple on earth is just the dimmest hint and echo of that cosmic future reality. What a quote, <laughs> right? That's what the whole Bible's pointing to, cover to cover. In other words, Jesus' time to be here as the true bridegroom hasn't come yet, but it's coming. It is coming. There will be a time in the future when Jesus comes to get his bride, and we will have the ultimate celebration, not just for two days, three days, seven days, but a whole lot longer than that. But in order for that to happen, Jesus would have to shed his blood to bring us, all of us, into that never-ending joy. So that now leads us into our fifth point, turning to Jesus to fix things. And so to foreshadow everything his ministry would be about, Jesus does this incredible first miracle. Take a look at how John records it in verses 6 through 8. Now there were how many? Six stone water jars. They were there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So Jesus gives the servants a lengthy responsibility. Fill the six stone water jars used for Jewish purification with water and fill those things to the brim. Think about it. Each jar could hold 20 to 30 gallons each. So that's a lot of water. That's between 120 and 180 gallons total. And they were to fill those things to the brim. After the quite lengthy process for them to do that, Jesus tells them to draw some out and bring it to the master of the feast. I can hardly imagine what that man must have felt like. If I was the master of the feast, or man, imagine if you were the master of the feast, I'd be probably walking around in circles being like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Trying to figure out a way to fix the problem. All my relational circuits in my brain would be off, right? I'd probably be quite snippy with people, and I would be sighing heavily every four seconds. I'd be a total wreck. Imagine the next scene, though. The servants go find the master of the feast. I can imagine him being kind of short with them until he sees new, sparkling, never-before-tasted wine in their cups and imagine him kind of grumpily tasting it and then being like, what in the world? Where did you get this? Where did you get this from? And then finding out they don't just have a cup of it, but closer to 120 to 180 gallons of it. Well, check it out would be a thousand bottles of wine. This on? <laughs> thousand bottles of wine. That's a big number <laughs> of wine. Now why would Jesus have to create so much wine? Why not just like a hundred bottles, right? We're talking like a, a wedding banquet, but why a thousand? That's a lot. Hmm, thousand? Think through the numbers. There are two amazing passages in the Old Testament that shed really awesome light on this. Take a look at Genesis 49 real quick. 10 through 12. Look at this verse. The scepter 
shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, listen to this, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is in Genesis, mind you. Those verses are telling us that someone from Judah's line will come, will be this incredible king who rules, and everything will be overflowing with abundance. But in order to rule that way, his clothes would have to be washed in wine. We're going to celebrate this really soon, right? His clothes would have to be washed in wine. Think of the rich imagery here. In order for this king to bring this super abundance, he would have to die first. If that's not enough to flesh out what's happening at this wedding, take a look at these verses in the book of Amos. When was the last time any of us ever even read the book of Amos, right? Even though there's a book of Amos in the Bible, right? Amos! Well, take a look. Amos 9. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows a seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I've given them, says the Lord your God. So talk about an awesome promise. There is a time coming when the mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills will overflow with it, and Israel will finally be in her land with the long-awaited king ruling over her and the entire world. This is a picture of abundant blessing, one that would come only if this king would die first to deal with the sin problem of the world. So while Jesus is at this wedding, he's about to foreshadow all of this really powerfully. So let's see what happens next, kind of as we start to wrap up here in point six. The result of Jesus's intervention. Take a look, nine through 12. So when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely then the, the poor wine but you have kept the best wine or the good wine until now this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and stayed there a few days. So talk about wow, right? 
The master tasted the water that was now sweet new wine and calls the master of the feast and lavishly praises the guy. He tells everyone that in a typical setting, people serve the good stuff first. Then when everyone had a drink, then they bring out, you know, the other stuff. But not this bridegroom. I can imagine him standing there blushing, his cheeks as red as the wine, and really, really thankful for the greater bridegroom who intervened in this way. So have, so you have new wine being produced, Jesus' miracles now beginning, his glory being manifested to the disciples, and his disciples believing to him in him. But now, what does it all mean? Why does Jesus turn water in these specific jars into wine? And why such a large quantity? And why wine? What's the rationale? Well, let me tell you as we start wrapping up here. So I believe these six stone water jars are symbolic of the Old Covenant. Think about it. Six stone water jars, 20 to 30 gallons each, which equate to 120 to 180 gallons total. How long do you think it took those servants to fill those jars to the brim? How many times did they have to go to the well over and over and over again? I wonder how far the well was from them. Think of all the work it took to fill those up to the brim. Think about what that symbolizes. Under the old covenant, the Jewish people had to do certain sacrifices and traditions over and over and over again. It was a lengthy process like filling the jars. At best, those things that they did could only cover their sins, not actually pay for them. So what could they do? Would God ever send his promised Messiah? Perhaps over time, their joy and their expectation waned. I mean, think about it. Wouldn't yours? Think of the old covenant as the old way of approaching God through external laws. There's a problem with it, though. All it could do is hold out a standard, but it couldn't empower us to keep it. In essence, it is impossible to keep, and it pointed out to us in glaring detail that we are flawed and that we are in desperate need of a Savior. So thank God for Jesus, our Savior. At just the right time, he came, he left heaven, came here to earth, placed himself under this law, kept it perfectly, died in our place, and rose from the dead to usher in the new covenant, a sweet new way approaching God through what Jesus did. Isn't that exciting, friends? We can now approach God through what Jesus did on our behalf. That gives us confidence. That gives us joy. That by grace, through faith, we can approach God. We can receive what he did. That's why we celebrate this over and over again, because we never, ever want to forget it. Instead of an external law, there's been an internal change when we receive Christ. Through faith in what he did for us, Jesus takes away all our sins. He actually gives us a new heart with new desires that would actually want to obey him as an overflow of our sweet new relationship with him. It's a totally new and sweet and joyful way to live all based on Jesus. He really did save the best wine for last. So what an awesome miracle. Huh. So as we wrap up, I just want to ask, where are you with this miracle today? 
and what it points to. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet trusted Christ, I, I, don't, I wouldn't know it, right? God knows, you know. So where are you with that? God the Son in human flesh is inviting you to admit to him that you've sinned against God, that your sins create this separation between you and him. They do. That's why he came. We can't fix that separation on our own. That's why he came. So he's inviting us to admit that to him. That's A. B is to believe that he is who he said he was, that he lived a perfect life, died and rose, so that he could take care of all that. And then C is calling on him to save us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us this. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works so no one can boast. And then John 5, 24 tells us, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes who, him who sent me has eternal life. He's not coming to judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so if you're thinking about this, on the fence about this, please come talk to Dan, one of the elders here, myself. Really just look around. Find someone who knows Jesus personally and talk to them about this. We're about to celebrate communion. It's a great time to think about, have you received what Jesus has done for you? If you haven't, think about this today. Because this is remembering what Christ has done for us. And for those of us here who have trusted Jesus, I want to end with one last quote from Tim Keller to drive this all home. What do single people think about at weddings? Why do they often sit at wedding receptions with this funny, faraway look in their eyes? They're looking beyond the current bride and groom and thinking about what their own wedding day will be like. And perhaps that's what Jesus is doing at this wedding. Maybe he's thinking of his own wedding to us, the church, with infinite joy and utter horror at the same time. So let's paraphrase what he's saying one more time. Mother... For my people to fall into my arms, I'm going to have to die. For my people to drink the cup of joy and blessing, I'm going to have to drink the cup of justice and punishment and death. So friends, here's the answer to the final question. How is Jesus going to bring us our joy? By losing all of his. By leaving his heavenly existence with his Father by leading a lonely, misunderstood life, by going to the cross and dying in our place, by rising from the dead and offering us eternal life right now and forever through receiving what he did for us. That, I believe, is what this passage is talking about. So what kind of response is God looking for us then? To trust his heart is good, to see what lengths he went to go to be with us, to receive his love, to live as his loved ones, to believe that, live from that, and share it with others. So why don't we pray now, and then I'm going to hand it back over to whoever I hand it back over to, and uh, let's thank the bridegroom for doing this with us, and with his help, live as his beloved bride. Let's pray. So Father, I want to thank you for this passage in John 2. Thank you, Lord, that this really is just scratching the surface. There's so much more here. Thank you that this points to how you left heaven and came into this world to live a perfect life in our place, to then die for us, 
come back to life. Lord, you knew that this was the only way we could be right with you. Thank you that you did what it took to make us right with you. Us trying really, really hard to be good, to clean our lives up, to be good moral people. Lord, that can't save us. You will not accept that on our behalf. That's basically saying we don't need Jesus because we got it all ourselves. We don't, Lord. We need what you did for us. So I pray, Lord, that you would sweep through this place by your spirit. If there's anyone here trusting in themselves to get them right with you, let them stop doing that today and put their faith in you instead and trust what you did for us. And for those of us here who have trusted you, help us thank you in this moment and keep trusting you. Whatever area you're leading us in, guiding us in, I pray for faith in that area too. Keep drawing us to faith in you. And thank you for our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.